0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about Grunge's lost supergroup, Temple of the Dog, who are coming back to tour this fall. But first, we're going to get into what we're listening to around the office.
2: I'm not sure if
3: it's...
1: And that's a little bit of Wreck You from the new album by Laurie McKenna, a country singer-songwriter. I'm here with John Dolan. What's up, John? Hey, Nathan. John, this record is slaying me. You turned me on to this record. And it's my favorite singer-songwriter record of the year.
4: It's a four-star uh, singer-songwriter record. It's Ooh. really, really remarkable. Every song, you know, kind of cuts deep. Lori McKenna's got a great, <clears throat> excuse me, a great story. She lives in Stoughton, Massachusetts. She's Stoughton. Stoughton. Sorry about that. Can, you're from I can there, say so that you're as up, a Massachusetts, right. <laughs> and she but she doesn't sound
1: anything like anybody from Stoughton I've ever met.
4: She's got no Massachusetts <laughs> accent. Uh, and she uh, is a mother of five, and even and she and she had kids and was a songwriter before when she kind of went from being kind of part of the Boston sort of folk scene to becoming a really reliable and successful Nashville songwriter. Um, I, I didn't
1: notice she had three kids already when she got. First became a professional songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean,
4: started off writing songs, I think it was Faith Hill, a couple of, this is about 10 years ago, but she... Which is pretty freaking country. Yeah, it's as, yeah. I mean, she's, it's, she's a country, it's not Roots Rock, it's not alternative country. She writes songs for, for instance... Um, the Little Big Town song, Girl Crush, is her. She one of, her, one of the songs on this record was a number one hit for Tim McGraw, Humble and Kind. So it's like she's had this real success writing for all, all these people going back for about close to 15 years while she's right. made her own records, which are much more reflective of the kind of Boston, Massachusetts kind of folk scene. Like, and they, and she's they in her like mid-40s
1: that. now, right? Yeah. And like, So yeah, she, her career really started a while ago, but she's having a moment now. It yeah. is.
4: One of her records is actually called Massachusetts, but this one is, like you say, having a moment, and it's especially powerful. I think some of the touchstones are much more sort of 70s singer-songwriter stuff, uh, Blood of the Tracks maybe, or John Prine, or maybe the sort of really well-observed relationship songs on Tunnel of Love, uh, Bruce Springsteen. It's cut from that, and, it, and it's, it sounds like that. It's produced by David Cobb, who's a Nashville producer who's worked with people like Strigel Simpson, and does a great job kind of focusing on the the vocals focusing on a, a simple kind of stripped down approach to production that really highlights the songs. I mean, one, actually, another song I want to mention that she did this year, one of her best songs, is on the Brandy Clark record, Big Day in a Small Town, Three Kids No Husband. It's a real great, you know, sort of... And yeah, I mean, she deals with, I mean, a lot of her themes. So she gets into
1: some interesting places, but a lot of her themes are like down the middle of the plate, Nashville or country music themes, you know, like relationship songs or dealing with kind of going back to your hometown.
4: But what sets her apart, I mean, her lyrics are just killer. I mean, she really nails it. She really gets into the kind of, and this is kind of, I think, where maybe some of the John Prine kind of thing comes in, is the commonplace details and the enormity of commonplace details in your life. And because the music can be a little more stripped down and a little more quiet, she's really allowed to focus on that. We just listen to Wreck You. And one of the, it's a a relationship song about a relationship going bad. And one of the lyrics is, I keep my change in the car ashtray. I haven't smoked in years. In years and years but lately I've been craving, which is kind of the kind of thing. It's like those kind of moments in your life and how those moments become crisis moments. And there's it's throughout this whole record. There's-
1: yeah, another one of my favorite songs is Giving Up in Your Hometown. And, and you were just talking about some of the lyrics on that. There's this one devastating verse about this cheap motel you were talking about.
4: I mean, it's, it's one of those songs, right? Like how many My Hometown songs have we heard? We've heard them three years and years and years. Eric the, Church had a pretty good one Bruce a couple Springsteen, of years ago. Yes, Bruce you know, Springsteen, he's got a couple. <laughs> got a couple. Uh, but she's talking about this new this hotel that's kind of coming. You know, you've got the church, you've got the sunset you remember through your whole life. You know, you've got your mamas, the you know, places where you grew up. Um, I, everything's changed in the town, but the sunset is the same, but everything else is pretty bleak. You know, she gives you a sense of what this place is like with such a great intimate detail. She says, there's a freshwater shark in a small fish tank behind the counter, doors always locked, and you got to prepay cash by the hour. Um, you know, it's America falling apart. It's morality falling apart, but it's real life.
1: Yeah, and it definitely, without really even trying to, it feels this song like really resonates in this moment where a lot of people are talking about, you know, the, the state of rural
4: America and how much trouble people are in. It's dark and sad, but it's moving, and you will this record, every song. Yeah.
2: Well, I
1: And that was a little bit of Hunger Strike from Temple of the Dog, the lost grunge supergroup that Andy Green wrote about in the latest issue of Rolling Stone. Andy's here. Hi. Hey, Andy. Um, We're going to talk about uh, Temple of the Dog. They're finally touring. After 25 years?
3: Yeah, it's been 25 years. They formed in 1990, but the album didn't come out until 1991, so this is the anniversary. It's been a quarter century of Temple the Dog. So, like, on one
1: hand, I mean, like, they can be looked at, like, t- almost two ways. And, and the band, in a way, didn't even really know how to look at themselves. In a way, they're like a grunge footnote, as you say in the story. But on the other hand, they're also, like, the band that's responsible for Pearl Jam, and it's kind of an amazing story.
3: Yeah, it's sort of half-forgotten to most people, but they sold a lot of albums in, like, 92 it, after Pearl Jam got real big. But this was Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Yeah, well, let's go through the line. It's yeah. Chris Cornell at Soundgarden. There's also Matt Cameron on drums, who was in Soundgarden at the time, who joined Pearl Jam in 98 and is still there. Right. Then it's Jeff Ament, the bassist from Pearl Jam. It's Stone Gossard, the guitarist from Pearl Jam. And it is also Mike McCready, the guitarist in so Pearl Jam. It's basically
1: Pearl Jam with Chris Cornell
3: of Soundgarden fronting it. That's exactly right. Right. Yes, um, but there was no Pearl Jam back then.
1: But there was no Pearl Jam. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. It's crucial, yes. So, yes, <laughs> and this is the band that kind of drew in Eddie Vedder. So let's, well, why don't you start at the beginning? It was a tribute record.
3: Yes. There was a group in Seattle called Mother Love Bone that was fronted by this guy named Andy Wood, and he was a super charismatic dude that was their lead singer, and he died of a heroin overdose.
1: Super flamboyant guy. Yeah. I mean, you can hear. I mean, we can debate the merits of Mother Love Bone, but there's no doubting. I mean, you can hear even in his vocals that there's something there. He's right. A lot
3: of personality. Right. And they weren't successful. You know, they played bars and clubs in Seattle, but he sort of treated them as if they were playing at a, at a stadium. He wanted to be a huge rock god.
1: And and this what he was playing. Behind him were basically the members of Pearl Jam. Two now. of them. Two of them. Yes. Which ones? It was Stone
3: Gossard and it was Jeff Ament. Got it. And he died of a heroin overdose in March of 1990. Let's uh, hear a little bit of Chris Cornell talking about Andy Wood. They were roommates? Yes, they were roommates and very close friends. Soundgarden was big at the time, but not huge. They were a huge regional band to some degree, so he had a roommate. Right. And they were very close. It, It was a very small music scene then, so everybody was friends. All right, well, here's Chris Cornell. I just wanna start talking about Andy Wood. So how would you describe Andy to someone that had never met him? Just like what was he like?
0: Um effervescent. Mm-hmm. Um He's very charismatic. She was funny. Mm-hmm. Um Sort of in a prankster way, but, but, um, also self deprecating. Might, might be more likely that he would go to the self deprecating while kind of just, um, at the same time, kind of being this larger than life rock star. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: Right, and you always hear that his biggest dream in life was to play arenas and be like a rock god, right? Sort of.
0: He was sort of assuming he, he he was sort of, uh, in a sense, kind of, um, being that person. You know, he was making he was making his own reality by already being that person. The way that I would kind of imagine um, Freddie Mercury was when I see documentaries of the of the early years he just felt that about himself that was who he was already um and and time had to catch up with him
3: right and um, as
0: Rude- the rest of the world had to had to just figure it out and that's the way andy kind of was he already was a rock star and was just patiently waiting for the rest of the world to figure it out so, so yeah.
1: And that was Chris Cornell speaking earlier and right after that was a, l- a little snippet of uh, Crown of Thorns which was a track by Mother Love Bone. Yes. Alright, well let's hear a little bit from Mike McCready who was basically on the scene playing in a bunch of different bands and was a childhood friend you said earlier of Stone, Stone Gossard. Gossard. Yes. Of course.
2: Here's Mike McCready. I mean, And Andy was super funny too so I, I, from what I recall being in the audiences and how he would do stuff like if you got, hey everybody in the back we're in a tiny club in Seattle called The Central he's like if everybody in the back, which nobody was in the back, if everybody in the back doesn't come up to the front, we're going to do the whole Peter Chris solo record. <laughs> you know, he he was a rock star, and how he carried himself around Seattle from my point of view when I would see him walking around in, in clubs, and he had his scarves on, his glasses, and you know, and Seattle was was kind of people thought they were kind of cooler than that in a way, or which was kind of kind of weird, you know, and and he didn't carry, just kind of carried himself in this this glorious 70s kind of yet funny way, you know. And I didn't know him at all again, so I, I, want, I want to make sure that I'm not saying it like I hung out with him a bunch. I sure. would just see this from my
3: outside perspective. So Andy Wood died of a heroin overdose in March of 1990. Here's Chris Cornell talking about hearing that news. I mean, this is painful to remember, but do you recall hearing about what happened to him, that he was in a coma was going to pass away? Do you remember like getting that message?
0: Well, it's a little confusing because I wasn't there. Um, I, we were traveling from Europe back to the US but not that back to Seattle. I think we stopped in New York. Um, so I just remember being kind of jet lagged and, and uh, didn't really understand what the news was. I think the news was that he was in a coma and what that meant really was unclear at first mm-hmm. until I got back to Seattle. Um, and then, you know, there's just sort of feelings of confusion and disbelief really didn't really, really <clears throat> didn't really seem like um, someone not alive and, and particularly that young was actually really going to die. That didn't seemed like that was going to happen it's a difficult thing to say but i honestly feel like it it, it hit us harder than had to been someone where you might have seen it coming and there's always people in, in the music scene that everybody knows that struggles with drugs and has od'd and um disappeared for weeks and months and and the news of their death might not surprise you, but Andy wasn't that. And I think sometimes there's a misconception that he was this junky guy. He was not that in any way, shape, or
1: form. And that was Chris Cornell. So, Andy, tell me, how did they actually get into
3: the studio? Like, what happened next? What happened was that Cornell was really distraught about what happened. You know, sort of the first major tragedy that had hit the music scene. So he started to write these songs, and the days after the funeral, he just started writing songs about Andy. It was almost, these songs were, like, were almost talking to Andy. And they were very different than Soundgarden songs, because Soundgarden back then was very aggressive. And so he decided that he wanted to record them, but with other people. And he thought they'd be more meaningful if he got some of, of his ex-bandmates. I mean, this was before Soundgarden did anything even,
1: like, as poppy as
3: Black Hole Sun. This is when
1: right. Soundgarden were just known for doing very slow, droning, right. really hard rock.
3: Yeah, right. and these songs, they just weren't suited for that. So at the time, the various Lovebone Bone guys, they were not really all together at that moment. Jeff was thinking about going to college, and this has sort of brought them back together to record a tribute to Andy Wood, and so it was basically it was this is this is this is how Pearl Jam started basically was Cornell bringing them all back into the fold. If they hadn't been around, then there, yeah, there would have been no Pearl Jam, probably. right? Yeah. And at the same time that they're doing all this, they decide they're gonna find a new singer and start their own band because this Temple of the Dog was very temporary because Cornell was in Soundgarden, they were touring Europe and stuff, you know? Right. So they reached out and tried to find a new frontman to start their band, and that was Eddie Vedder.
1: Let's hear a little bit
3: of uh, Reach
1: Down. That's one of the songs that Chris Cornell wrote about Andy Uh, Wood. Yes. Do you want to say
3: anything about Reach Down? Yeah. This is is like one of those nine-minute songs, right? Yeah, this is a super long song. There's a long McCready solo at the end. It's really something. Because the month before they started to work on this, there was a new Neil Young and Crazy Horse record, Ragged Glory, which is a really jammed out thing. It's sort of a big thing in the grunge era at the time, and that inspired them to write a really long song, like a Crazy Or song. Just reach down.
1: But the most famous song from the album is actually not about Andy Wood, or maybe residually it is, but uh, it's Hunger Strike. It's more about kind of Chris Cornell's attitudes about fame at the time. Do you want to say a little bit about
3: that? Yeah, I think what happened was Soundgarden got signed to a major label. They were going on these big tours, they were making money, and all the fellow musicians in Seattle were broke and playing clubs. So, he sort of wrote this song, Hunger Strike, about his weird feelings about making money and being successful, because the whole scene was sort of anti-success and anti-money. So, he was very conflicted about what was happening. So, thus he wrote Hunger Strike. And this is Chris Cornell talking about that. So, what inspired Hunger Strike? Was it ambivalence towards fame and success at all, or what was sort of sparked that in your mind?
0: I think it was at the end, you know, there was this, this uh, existential crisis that. Soundgarden was certainly faced with in that moment. We were sort of the first band that that um, had attention from from big labels uh, in a way that, that that was you know meaningful enough that there you know there was a bidding war. I think by then and and, uh, and it was truly sort of an unusual thing um, for any Seattle band for sure because that didn't happen to anybody. Uh, and there was no, um, there was no hope for or desire for it. You know, we were all kind of realizing our dreams as as being in the post-punk U.S. indie rock scene. And, and the beauty of that scene was that it was something. As a band, um, once we created our band, we could be in it. And those were the bands that we loved, and those were our heroes, and and uh, and we were players in that world of heroes. So, so outside of that, um, it, it was really uncomfortable. And, and the idea of getting, having more people listen to our music was great, but, but there was a, uh, there's a huge mistrust in what that means. Does it make us essentially a commercial rock band or does it, does it make us, uh, does it change somehow, um, whether we know it or not, does it does it change our motivation when we're writing a song or making a record? And 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 um, hunger strike really is is uh, a statement saying that um, you know I'm true to what I'm doing um, regardless of of uh, what comes of it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but I will I will never change what I'm doing um, for for purposes of success or, or money, I suppose, is, is sort of a, the
1: overwhelming
0: factor to the statement.
1: And it's actually on Hunger Strike where... Uh Eddie Vedder actually comes on the scene. He was at the time he was rehearsing, you said, with the members of what would become Pearl Jam. Yeah. But he actually hadn't sung on anything in the studio.
3: Yeah, he had just come. He was in San Diego. He was working as a security guard at a gas station. He had traveled up to go meet the guys in Pearl Jam. They had just rehearsed together. And at the same time that they're forming Pearl Jam and first jamming together in a basement, they were working on this Temple of the Dog album. So he shows up at the rehearsals and had no intention of singing or anything. He, he was there to watch, basically.
1: And here's uh, Jeff Ament talking about that session and actually how Eddie got involved.
3: And do you remember how he sort of got that part on Hunger Strike, how that all went down? Um...
5: I mean, my memory was that he was just sitting in the corner of the room, uh, you know, writing in his journal and like, uh, like drawing and keeping himself busy. While because I think we, I think we did those temple sessions after we did Pearl Jam uh, rehearsals, and then I think there was a point in that in that Hunger Strike song where Chris was sort of trying to cram a lot of vocal, like, the, the way that the verse lays over the chorus. It was, there was, like, he's sort of catching up. There was words laying over, and I think Ed just walked up to the mic and
1: sang the other part at one point. And here's a little bit of uh, Chris Cornell also talking about the Hunger Strike sessions. Eddie just kind of shyly walked up to the mic and
0: started singing the low, going hungry, and, and I started singing the, the high one. Um... And when I heard him sing, uh, I just the whole thing just kind of came together in my brain. I just felt like, wow, his voice is so great in, in this low register. Uh, he should sing on it, and I'll sing the first verse to almost nothing, and then the band will kick in. And even though it's the same lyrics, it's a different singer, and it will feel like two verses. Um, I, mean, I think we did that right then. That was it.
1: And Eddie was still working as a security guard. And uh, Mike McCready talks a little bit about driving him to the airport so he could make it back for his uh, shift. Here's a little bit of Mike McCready.
2: We rehearsed for seven days with him, and then did uh, our first show Mm -hmm. um, with Eddie, Um, and that was on the eighth day, um, which is sounds weird, but (laughs) it's kind of that's exactly what happened. Then he had to get back to work at his job, being a night watchman. Because I remember I had to give him a. Ride back to the airport at freaking five thirty in the morning. The next morning after we played this show, <laughs> and he's like, "You better get me back to the airport on time." And I was like, "I will." And so I did. I got and I got up at maybe four thirty or five and got him back to the airport.
1: And that was Mike McCready. Um, so, Andy, tell me how how we got to this point with the reunion. How much of this, you know, has this band actually gotten back
3: together since then in the last 25 years, and how yeah. did this come about? I mean, they never toured because they were busy with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. They did one little club appearance in 1990 when they first came together, and there's been some small reunions because since Matt Cameron has joined Pearl Jam, if Chris Cornell just walks on stage, it's suddenly Temple of the Dog. So at a, at, a, at a few shows, he would come out announcing Hunger Strike. They did a mini set at their 20th anniversary concert in 2011, but they never actually toured. But it's the, it's the big anniversary now. They have a huge box set that's coming out of demos and live stuff and outtakes. So it sort of made sense to finally do some shows. Have you heard the box set yet? Yeah, it sounds great. They have remastered the entire album by producer Brendan O'Brien. There's, there's cool demos.
1: Are there any songs where you can't believe they left yeah, out? I think, they,
3: I think that they made the right choices. that The 10 songs on the album are the ones that belong there, but there's cool outtakes. And I like a nice, tight 10 songs on, yeah, a, on a record. But yeah, they're, but they're pretty long at times, but yeah. <laughs> but they're good. Because for most people, they'd, they just don't hunger strike. But the, the whole album is very strong.
1: One thing you asked Jeff Amen about is whether they're going to be playing Mother Love Bone songs, which would be really
3: appropriate. Because right, the big question that hovers above all these shows is: there's just only ten songs on this album, so how else are we going to fill out a whole rock concert? Right. Well, here's uh, Jeff Amon. I spoke to Mike about an hour ago. He said that he would like to play some two play some Mother Love Bone songs.
1: Yeah, I think that. Well, I think that would be
5: appropriate. You know, I think if there was a little bit of. A little bit more of Andy in there that would probably be it, probably would work. And and we did start out with him at the PJ20 thing, which was awesome. Um, so you know, I you know, I think a lot of it's just going to depend on what you know, Chris is sort of comfortable doing and what he feels like works for him and what he's you know, what he and, and even what the rest of us are excited about. Um, yeah, but it's it's, it's sort of exciting not knowing what we're going to do and even how. And not even knowing how we're going to present
1: the songs that are on the record. And that was Jeff Amen. So do you think there's going to be any confusion? Is, do you think there's a chance that like that like uh, Pearl Jam fans yeah. or Temple of the Dog fans might expect Eddie yeah. Vedder to be there because he I, is yeah. on that most famous song? I think song.
3: some people are going to show up and expect to see Eddie Vedder. He's in the group to some degree. He's uh, you know, and he's on more songs than just that. He's singing background on, on a few songs also. He was part of the group. But he's not billed for these concerts. And they're playing eight shows. I asked the guys if they thought Eddie would show up, and they hemmed down, they hawed. They said maybe, they hope so. So there's eight shows. I'm guessing Eddie will show up at at least one, probably Seattle. It seems likely Seattle. Right. Maybe one of the other big cities, But it's sort of tricky. If if he comes early, it's a huge deal, and the fans that see it later will be bummed out. Right. So he'll, hand, he'll overwhelm everything. So I think the last show is the best bet because that can't leave people, you know, all that angry. All right, now it's on the record. So Andy Green is betting on
1: the last show that is in that's, Seattle? Yeah, it's in Seattle, What's yes. the date? It's November something. Okay, he's guaranteeing people's tickets if they buy the, them for that, that Yes, show. I personally guarantee they will be any better there. All I will right. give you all refunds. We'll put out his email address later. Yes, please. Andy Green. Thanks. It sounds like they're going to be great shows no matter what. Andy Green, thanks for coming on. To talk about Temple of the Dog. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.